April 27, 1994. As dawn ushered in this day, few of us could suppress the welling of emotion as we were reminded of the terrible past from which we come as a nation, the great possibilities that we now have, and the bright future that beckons us. In this quote, Nelson Mandela captures the hope of the South African people. After 343 years of oppression, South Africa hosted its first democratic elections, the birth of the rainbow nation, the end of an era. But wait, the story didn't end there. The people didn't get the happy ending that they were promised, that thousands died for, that they deserved. In 2018, the World Bank branded South Africa as the most unequal country in the world. Quite a far cry from the Rainbow Nation. The apartheid regime, lasting from 1948 to 1994, inscribed the belief of white superiority in space. Urban and prosperous land was reserved for the white population, while black, coloured and Asian South Africans were banished to a life of poverty in rural peripheries. Out of sight, out of mind. This encapsulates the greatest weapon of the regime, spatial apartheid. Spatial apartheid is the deliberate act of putting marginalized peoples in remote areas that impede access to economic, social, and educational opportunities. Today, all it takes is one Google image search to reveal that the geography of apartheid remains. Take Hap Bay, for example a seaside suburb boasting a landscape of rolling hills, stately mansions, horse paddocks, and prestigious private schools. All of this can be viewed from next door, barely meters away, in Mizamo Yetsu, a settlement of small brick houses, tin shacks, and mud paths that smell of sewage in the summer sun. The grass is greener on the other side, literally. Of the two, one is 90% black populated, the other is not. I'll leave you to guess which. Why has so little changed? The international community is riddled with this question, yet they fail to recognize that the answer is written in the land. This podcast will piece together the parts of the puzzle and investigate why oppressive regimes outlive their formal termination. Part 1 architected disparities. The first piece of the puzzle involves understanding the relationship between geography and inequality in South Africa, which requires looking at the country's history of dispossession. I had the privilege of interviewing a professor that has studied this connection, having conducted over a decade of ethnographic research in South Africa. My name is uh, Zachary Levinson. I'm an assistant professor of sociology at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro, and I'm a senior research associate in the Department of Sociology at the University of Johannesburg. Dr. Levinson defines dispossession as the physical separation of people from their homes, communities, and social networks. In 1651, newly arrived Dutch settlers instructed native South Africans to either leave their land or remain as servants relegated to slaves in their own home. As inhumane as this sounds, the dispossession of land signifies something greater. The robbing of dignity, as you are told you are not even worthy of a home. The robbing of economic power, as you are stripped of your most valuable asset. And lastly, the robbing of identity. Land that has nurtured and been nurtured by your ancestors, 
Stolen, the birth of a landless people. By 1913, non-whites, 90% of the population, were confined to 7% of the land as a result of the Native Lands Act. This prohibited blacks, coloreds and Asians from purchasing or renting land outside these reserves. In the words of Sol Platje, a founding member of the African National Congress Party, awaking on Friday morning, June 20th, 1913, the South African native found himself a pariah in the land of his birth. These spatial patterns were heightened by the introduction of the apartheid regime in 1948, a system of institutionalised racism imposed by the all-white National Party. There's this division into four official races, heavily regulated by the state, and a carving up of the map. 1950, they passed something called the Group Areas Act, and the Group Areas Act allows them to define it in quite crude terms as there are these group areas. There are white group areas, there are African group areas, there are so-called colored group areas, and then Asian group areas. 3.5 million non-white South Africans were uprooted from their homes and transplanted to rural wastelands. One of the most famous examples is District 6. It was home to a vibrant community of 60,000 Black, Coloured and Asian South Africans. Novelist Alex de Guma described it as the soul of Cape Town, the local artery of the world of haves and have-nots. The streets were animated with crowds of family and friends, a charged space pulsating with life and spirit. But in 1966, the government pulled a plug on this hub of racial harmony. The thing was razed to the ground and 60,000 residents were forcibly removed to an area about an hour's drive east called the Cape Flats. It's a windswept, sandy plain. It's where all the townships are. Thousands of communities were divided, devastated and demolished. Many were expelled to Bantustans, rural territories labelled as the rightful homes of Black South Africans. Chillingly described as human dumping grounds, they were void of resources and void of life. Not only did these homelands have poor education systems, but children were primarily trained for manual labour to reiterate the ideology that Blacks are subservient to Whites. As economic activity increased in the cities, people started filtering out of the far-flung homelands to be closer to work opportunities. In response to African urbanization, the government established townships, which are slums in the outer limits of urban centers, in a quest for wages that would provide for their families. Fathers left their wives behind. Single mothers left their children behind. A dissolving of social ties. Now that we have examined apartheid from a unique spatial lens, it becomes clear that segregation engineered oppression in all avenues of life. Architected disparities. Surely, the election of a black majority government would pave the way to a united South Africa and inclusive development for all. Part 2. A Rocky Road to Redemption After four years of negotiations with the National Party, the South African people voted in Nelson Mandela and the African National Congress in 1994. As the first democratic government following centuries of colonialist subjugation, there were great expectations and great promises to remediate the past. 
In light of this possession, the ANC adopted a land reform strategy that aimed to return 30% of land to its previous owners by 1999. In addition, the Reconstruction and Development Programme was introduced in 1994, a policy framework seeking to alleviate socio-economic inequalities. Under this programme, the ANC promised the delivery of 1 million houses by 1999. Most importantly, a new constitution was approved in 1996. It was praised for giving rise to a new breed of constitutionalism as it enshrined socio-economic rights. South Africa guarantees access to housing in its constitution. So Section 26 explicitly guarantees access to decent housing, and it requires the government to progressively realize this goal. But once we look closer at Section 26 of the Constitution, can you spot anything concerning? It's not a right to housing, but rather a right to access housing. What constitutes as access, and how is this unlocked? It also mentions the progressive realization of this right. How long are families meant to wait until these rights are fulfilled? In hindsight, the word choice foreshadows what was to come. Our skepticism surrounding the constitution does not end there. Section 25.7 states that South Africans that were dispossessed of their land after 1913 are entitled to property restitution or a form of equitable relief. This seems to align with the ANC's promise to return 30% of land to its previous owners. But are they the rightful owners after all? White settler colonists at the barrel of a gun seized the land, forcibly expelled racialized populations, limits them or relegates them to certain areas of the land, and then freezes this arrangement under the flag of private property. And then we write into the constitution some provision that protects that private property. You've legitimized colonial land seizure. Section 25 upholds private property rights, birthing the concept of expropriation with compensation. White South Africans become the rightful owners of dispossessed land, meaning that the government is mandated to pay them if this land is to be returned. The new constitution was always going to be a compromise, given that it involved multi-party negotiations that started pre-1994. As recognized by Professor Andrea Lolini at Bologna University, constitutional transitions are produced by new political players and protagonists of the previous regime. Compromises are necessary, but at what cost? Part 3. Locked in place. The final piece of the puzzle involves inspecting the extent to which these promises translated into reality. To this day, only 7.5% of land out of the intended 30% has been redistributed to non-white South Africans. Perhaps this outcome is not as bleak as it sounds. After all, the constitution did also provide the option of equitable relief to dispossessed communities. However, this relief has been interpreted as symbolic compensation, a financial sum that completely disregards the market value of the property this kind of contradiction almost, or almost like a paradox, where the Constitution is being celebrated as among the most progressive globally, and yet as implemented, it was quite different. Not only have non-white South Africans permanently lost their ancestral homes, but they're given crumbs in compensation, a standard settlement offer of $3,500. 
in some cases, this is 20 times less than what their property was worth. Meanwhile, the Land Restitution Commission has spent 1.1 billion rand acquiring property from white landowners in the name of expropriation with compensation. This captures a bitter irony. The programs aimed to solve apartheid-era inequalities are simply reinforcing them. Is this by chance? Perhaps this was not the intended consequence, but there was always a reluctance to remove land from white South Africans in fear that it would endanger foreign investment. Maybe South Africa is no longer a safe space for investment because your land could be seized at any point. Well, you have to ask, what are international investors doing investing in land that was seized by a white supremacist regime and never returned to those from whom it was seized? Without some sort of land reform that deperipheralizes huge segments of the population, those racialized segments of the population that have been perpetually not just marginalized in a symbolic sense, but relegated to socio-spatial oblivion, there needs to be a way to reincorporate them back into the, the parts of the city that are closer to the central business district, that are safe, that have scenery. And that takes us to today. 8.4% of the population, whites, own 80% of the agricultural land. As for the promise to deliver 1 million free houses, the ANC did not make this target by 1999, but they had built 1.5 million houses by 2003. South Africa has delivered more free formal housing units than any other modern democracy. This may sound like an achievement, but once we look beyond mere numbers, it seems anything but. According to the United Nations Development Programme, 70% of RDP houses were not of a suitable standard. In the words of South African journalist Oliver Wainwright, RDP buildings are identical sheds, marshalled into grim rows, barely distinguishable from the matchbox houses built in townships during apartheid. Likened to chicken coops and dog kennels, their dreary layout reinforces the sense of living in an open-air prison. If anything, these houses perpetuate the racist legacy of what constitutes as adequate housing for black people. Once again, the root of the failure can be traced back to economic incentives, as the government awarded building contracts to the private sector. Private construction firms cut corners, get government subsidies, produce under cost, and then turn over trash to people. Many of these houses are delivered on the cheap, and they build houses that hundreds of thousands of which are already deteriorating, to the point that the government said 600,000 of them need to be demolished and rebuilt altogether. Simply the fact of distribution is insufficient. Another problem is masked behind the statistic of delivering millions of houses. Once we zoom out, we see an image that is unsettling, that is a little different from apartheid. The apartheid geography remains. Cape Town, for example. You see the central business district, which is diverse, but overwhelmingly white and quite wealthy surrounded on all sides by sprawling white suburbs, often in gated communities, and then going outward on two sides, you see colored townships. And then between these two protective belts of colored townships, you see African townships. Why does the geography of apartheid remain? Housing delivery is still a key program in today's South Africa. A majority of the government-delivered houses are located on city outskirts given that marginal land is more affordable. 
letting real estate markets govern people's location and space tends to perpetuate more of the same, if not make things worse without coming up with some better way of getting well-located land for people, what's going to happen is you further marginalize them. Whether you're giving them houses or not, the fact is you're locking them into place or locking them into a certain spatial arrangement in which they're perpetually on the periphery. As we know all too familiarly, increased distance from the city entails further socioeconomic marginalization. Imagine this situation. You're given a house, but... The government only thought about the house. They didn't think about where it was located. What if the new house increases your cost of transport? That's money they need every day. Maybe it means they now have to make a choice between that and breakfast. Thinking about housing distribution without thinking about transportation, access to public schools, access to employment, you got a problem. So what happens? People get the free house and they realize They can't afford the increase in transport cost. They can't afford to get their kid to the public school that's no longer right there. The delivery of RDP homes has tragically created the 40 by 40 by 40 curse. 40 square meter houses, 40 kilometers away from the city, leaving individuals to spend 40% of their household income on transport. It therefore becomes no surprise that many leave these houses for informal settlements or townships closer to the city, just like their mothers and fathers did during apartheid. A vicious cycle. And this is the case if you are privileged enough to even receive a house, given that the average waiting period is 60 years. In the interim, people are left with no choice but to squat in informal settlements. Nomtandazo Shanga, an informal settlement resident in KwaZulu-Natal, shares, I'd hoped that having a president who knows our plight firsthand would change our lives for the better. But evidently, I was just daydreaming as nothing has changed except for the road that was built some years ago. The interaction of all of these shortcomings presents us with today's South Africa. According to the Institute of Race Relations, informal shack settlements have increased 800% since the end of apartheid in 1994. 40% of South African households live in townships. And to give you a picture, the top 10 biggest townships in South Africa, amounting to 5 million people, are 90% black and coloured. The geography of apartheid remains. The South African people remain locked in inequality, locked in time, locked in space. Now that we have pieced together the parts of the puzzle, we see what lies on the other side of the door to freedom. A story of parallels, where constitutional proclamations of equality become disregarded in reality, where government promises reproduce the very inequalities they seek to remedy and where celebratory cheers dissipate into dispiritedness. The formal termination of oppressive regimes is exactly that, performatively marked by a new government, a new constitution. But just because the law of the land proclaims everyone as equal does not make this a truth in reality. Oppressive regimes outlive their formal termination because economic incentives are prioritised over rectifying the spatial legacies of the past. As dispossession was the primary tool of apartheid, non-white South Africans will continue to be isolated from economic, social and educational opportunities until socio-spatial integration is achieved. 
The story of South Africa teaches us that true progress lies beyond the numbers and beyond the law. It lies with the people. As Nelson Mandela stated on that day in 1994, freedom should not be understood to mean leadership positions or even appointments to top positions. It must be understood as the transformation of the lives of the ordinary people in the hostels and the ghettos in the squatter camps, on the farms, and in the mine compounds. Until then, apartheid and its legacy of inequality remains.